Hey, everybody. Welcome. You are listening to Alumless. Thank you so much for tuning in on this Friday before Christmas. Yeah, here on the show, we talk about engagement strategies and educational advancement. I'm Ryan Catherwood, and of course, I'm here with Chris Marshall. He is the founder, the leader, the CEO of CMAC, and of course, Alumless is a CMAC production. If you have any questions for Chris or myself or just want to say hello, please use the comment section of the LinkedIn event and uh, say hello. And yeah, we'll ask uh, Monica any of your questions. Or if you want to chat with Chris and I during the live show, we'll attempt to answer your questions or save them for the podcast edition, the bonus segment, which we'll record with each and all of our guests. And you can hear on the podcast version of Alumless. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast edition to hear our Friday cheers section, which we always save for the end of the episode. And um, we're incredibly grateful to have an awesome sponsor for Protopia. Protopia is uh, our sponsoring partner. And we as engagement pros are always thinking about how to turn volunteers into our champions why? There are lots of reasons, but volunteers give at even two times the rate than others, two or three times the rate. This is particularly important for those alumni leaders working in integrated advancement models because we're trying to create a pipeline of donors. At the same time, students throughout their educational journey have questions and could use the advice of alumni. We're asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network more available from prospective student to former student and develop partnerships across campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network can be. So that's what Protopia solves for. Without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or platform, Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers in a flash. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden to the staff. Protopia is the tool that you've been looking for. Visit protopia.co forward slash alumless and be sure to mention Ryan and Chris sent you. And actually, we just sent out, Chris, our first newsletter. Um, What's our first kind of draft, right? We're imagining a more robust email communication this uh, to our listeners. So if you received an email from us this week, we're trying to get one off off the ground. We mentioned a survey that we had been... um, talking about a new business concept. We were promoting Monica's appearance this week and we promoted Protopia a little bit. So um, if you didn't get the newsletter and you want to, definitely give me an email, uh, ryan at cmac.me and we'll make sure to add you to the list. But Chris, you know, it's the holiday season, my friend. It's it's Friday before we break for the semester. I think pretty much most people have checked out already. Monica's here today. I guess she's still working. I'm like, uh, are you doing any work today? What are you doing? Yeah, working this morning, but no one's responding to emails, which I kind of expected. But uh, I try not to dump things on people's plates going into break. But I had a few cleanup things I had to get done. So just a little bit, a little bit of work, yeah. and then I'm going to take ten days. So I'm looking forward to that. Do you take? Do you completely check out? Like, do you turn off notifications? Do you like look at emails? Like, what do you do to completely, or not quite completely, turn check out? I know the the right answer is I should completely but the real answer is is that i do for a few days right over the holidays then you know starting after christmas i'll pretty much every morning spend an hour cleaning up email that's come in <laughs> just so i don't have I a pile when i get back Otherwise, well, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of the same way i mean i'd almost rather stay on top of it a little bit you know yeah. and make sure that the things don't quite pile up stay proactive rather than reactive you know 
Yep. Um, oh, there's the uh, the Marshall alarm. <laughs> um, well, so holiday season, I thought it would be fun to start off and talking just a minute or two about traditions in the Marshall household. You have any unique kind of family traditions around the holidays? Um, yes, and it starts with the Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, so I just saw Karen right in. Uh, the right answer is completely unplugged. I know, <laughs> Karen. Thank you for that. But um, our tradition starts the Friday after Thanksgiving, and we decorate the house, and we don't stop decorating until about mid-December when it's all done. And my daughter Savannah and I counted last night. Counting the smallest Christmas trees. These are three-dimensional objects. So Christmas tree is really small and the big eight-foot one in the living room. We have 82 different Christmas trees in our house. Now, like six big ones, but like the other ones are all little model things. But there's 82 Christmas trees, 60 wreaths hung in our house or on our house, and 20 nutcrackers. So yeah. that's my job is to get them out of the basement and help decorate. And then the big, the so, other big thing is on Christmas Day, Ryan, we actually... Uh, do presents in the morning. We go out for dinner. We go to a Chinese food restaurant and we go to a movie. <laughs> that's our been for the last since the kids have been born. Young kids have been born. We do it every year. So I think that's a great tradition. And, and I, I was at your house last weekend and I can attest the yeah. Christmas cheer at the Marshall <laughs> household is extraordinary. Uh, I can vouch for those numbers of Christmas trees. I did not attempt to count, but I imagine that you thoroughly counted and I can, I can see it. It's, it's impeccably uh, decorated. So it's like a lobby of a hotel in our house. <laughs> it's really, it's really uh, fantastic. We saw each other last weekend at the Washburn McGoldrick holiday party. I want to ask you kind of about that partnership. We're going to bring Monica out. Monica is a Washburn McGoldrick partner with Karen's listening on. Uh, what excites you the most about our Washburn McGoldrick partnership in 2024? What I've seen happen over the year, I mean, our, our overlapping circles keep overlapping is how I would describe it. And, and the work that's happening in our industry around, I, I would describe it as a more integrated advancement approach is continually happening over more and more of our clients. So the work that that Washburn does traditionally on the development side and the work that we do that leads right into that work just it's a natural partnership and a great blend and combo and great partners into people in the equation. Karen, who's on with us today with Bonnie Devlin, I've known for 22 years. Um, the, two, the two things that are sort of bubbling that I think would be really uh, 24, we'll see uh, some advances made is in our survey work that we're doing. I think we're doing some really interesting stuff here with opportunities to even grow and get bigger and better in that regard. And then I think the one you and I had a conversation last week about, um, or earlier this week, was it? Uh, about training, alumni engagement, and uh, donor engagement. How do we can how can we provide training? Washburn McGoldrick has a great intensive program where they train gift officers, and we can dovetail with our own work, sort of at a foundational level, around alumni and donor engagement training. So I think we're going to see that evolve this year too. Those are the two things I'm most looking forward to for this coming year. Yeah, I was thinking to add to that. You know, we had a, a potential client approach us and said, "Hey, you know." We'd love for you to create an advancement strategic plan yeah, for us, yeah. you know, and it's so oftentimes we get brought in to bring to create engagement strategic plans. But when a partnership with Washburn McGoldrick, you know, we can create these, I think, great advancement strategic planning initiatives and assist universities in thinking holistically about the integrated advancement model, but all these how the, all the elements fit together. 
Uh, one of which, of course, is operations. And I feel like that's a great segue to bring out our special guest uh, for today. Um, we have, hi, Monica, welcome. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> Monica. Oh, thank you for doing this, Monica, on, on the last day of work, probably for you. Right? <laughs> of course, happy to. Yeah, thank you. Monica Keith is the Vice President of Advancement at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. I had the chance to visit Monica, I guess, has it been two weeks now? Almost. Um, I spy. I, I was just there the other day. I really was. And uh, time flies by. But yeah, we spent the, the day together. And my, I've known Monica for many years now, actually going back to when we were colleagues at Washington and Lee together. And I've always been just so impressed because, you know, there aren't that many folks who have come up through advancement operations and are now leading advancement teams. I mean, it's just kind of the case. There may be more than I know of, but Monica's kind of the one person that I'd heard of recently that, you know, has that background kind of in the back of the house side of the shop and is now leading the whole advancement shop. So I'm looking forward to talking, Monica, to you about that. Um, I guess the first question for you is thinking about the advancement operations teams you led at Colby College and at Skidmore and, and others, of course, along your professional path. How do you think those experiences have helped you now as you lead the advancement team at Knox? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think that um, advancement has always been in the unique position operations specifically to kind of see the broader picture of what everyone else is doing from the alumni engagement office to the major gifts to the annual fund. We're usually coalescing and reporting all sorts of data points for them. And we can see the intersections specifically when it comes to communications, right? Like who's sending what, when, how often, um, you know, I'm noted for kind of raising the flag and being like, did you know we have six emails going out today? Does that make sense? Like maybe you guys should talk to each other or trying to bring them together and figure out how do we be more strategic about what we're saying, who we're saying it to and when. Um, so I, I think I bring that kind of element um, in mind. I am very data focused. And I think in my partnerships with some very talented VPs over the years, um, you know, we've been able to kind of bring more data into, you know, the advancement work and the engagement work. And I've learned a lot from them as leaders of how they use that information and how they think about it with their directors as well. I think it's, I think it's a fantastic, um, sort of reminder that the folks working in the operational roles really do have their eyes on the whole puzzle, you know, in a way that other folks either on the development or engagement side just don't. Uh, and I think what you said makes a lot of sense to me. It is somewhat unusual. I said, we mentioned that about someone with your role, uh, sort of being taking on the VP role. Have you had any growing pains so far in terms of thinking about you know, that frontline fundraising aspect now and working with major donors, I guess it is a bit different in terms of the work that you're doing each and every day. It is. It's, um, it's very different. I'd never been forward facing um, in that way. And I think, you know, I, I've actually enjoyed it much more than I thought I might. I was a little hesitant, of course, um, but I love talking about higher ed, liberal arts, education, uh, meeting alumni. I think that has come more naturally than I thought it would. The challenges, I think, were really more internal. 
um, I guess I had not realized, um, you know, the the partnerships across campus and the need to kind of bring awareness of what engagement and advancement is. A lot of times it's a little bit like, oh, we don't want to ask for money um, when you're talking to other departments or faculty. And, you know, and I have to say, we do so much more than just ask for money. We're trying to engage alumni with the institution, um, bring them back as speakers, um, recognize their achievements. Um, and yes, of course, a huge part of what we do is, is solicit philanthropy. But, you know, they have relationships that I think, you know, we need to remind them that we can work together to kind of bring people together here at Knox um, and, you know, to kind of promote our mission and the work of our students and, you know, their futures. Monica, I, I should know this, but did you come to Knox in the VP advancement role? Were you there originally? I did come uh, for the VP role, yes. Well, were you, were you actively looking for a vice president role that brought I you there? I actually was not at all. <laughs> yeah, I was not looking at all. I was um, I was at Skidmore, and I was happy doing what I was doing. But I had um, I'd worked with Andy McGatney, President McGatney, um, previously, and uh, we just had kept in touch over the years, and he had mentioned he'd had this role and asked if I would be interested and kind of did a little bit of research. I called um, quite a few former VPs that I'd worked with and colleagues, and I kind of said, you know, what do you think about my kind of taking on a role like this? And, you know, fortunately, all of them were like, you know, I think you, I think you could do this, um, mm. you know, the experience and personality and just kind of it's a different perspective on the work. Um, so I took a chance. And I've, yeah. I've appreciated it. Yeah, good for you for doing it, though. Putting your putting your, your, your yourself out in the in the field like that in the front facing role, giving your background, I think it's wonderful. Good for you. Thanks. Well, so you've been in the role about two years now. Um, what surprised you the most? Uh, what you know, I, I would imagine what surprised you about it, sort of personally, in terms of how you had to adjust uh, to that front facing role. And then what's something that you've been dealing with that may be a bit unexpected? Sure. Um, I think what has surprised me the most is um, really probably COVID related. Um, you know, it's just how much the field that I've been in for the past 20 years had really just blown up um, from, from a lot of different ways, um, how people think about giving and their impact. Um, the staffing in particular, I think, has been the biggest challenge is, is people rethinking how they want to work, where they want to work, um, and how they approach this type of work. Um, but I would say work in general. I think the pools have gotten very challenging. Um, I found it the most challenging to kind of really look at annual giving staff. I think a lot of people left the annual giving yeah. And um, and I've talked to several colleagues who've you know confirmed that as well. So really thinking about what are transferable skills and and how do we train people who are not naturally thinking about advancement as a career um, to think about how you know how important it is and how they can make it a career. Do you think? I mean, do you feel like Chris? Maybe this one is for you as well. I would love to hear. Do you think these roles in advancement have become fundamentally less attractive to people? I mean, in I guess universities, for example, many of them require five days on site. Right? Um, have gone back to pre-COVID types of recruitment rules. Are kind of. I think it's fair to say that we have left much of the COVID paradigm behind and are now shifting back to. Uh, is there something about 
you know, these roles in higher ed uh, that make it less attractive than they used to? Why do you think we're having these candidate pool problems? Monica, you should have this answer. <laughs> I think he said Chris. So yeah, I'll start. And jump it in. Kind of both. It was kind of both. I suppose yeah, there's, I lots know, of, know, there's yeah. lots of reasons, you know. You promised Monica no curveballs, and you threw a nice knuckle. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do think it's everywhere we look. We, we almost every client is struggling. Has open positions, and they're trying to fill. Just today, I posted Denison uh, University. Yeah. You know, they're not, they don't have any vacancies. They're growing by five new positions and they're posting five. That's all at once. So that's a big step. But almost every week I have a client ask me to post the job for them. They're just constantly vac vacant. And I think it's something to do with the work flexibility, uh, something to do with compensation. Um, there's lots of factors in there. But the one that is outside of advancement, although it touches it for sure, is I think the college president role is going to be the hardest ones. I, I can't imagine anybody wanting that job right now. <laughs> Looking around the country, what's going on? It's a really tough role to take on, not just the advancement piece, just the politics of leading an institution. So I think it's just we're in a tough spot in higher ed. I, I, you know, I don't have a firm solution. I think there's lots of options out there. But Monica, any reaction or thoughts to what I said? No, no, I completely agree. And um, and I, I find it interesting, and maybe I've been in this role uh, in advancement too long because I feel like excited, advancement is more exciting than it's ever been because of these challenges, mm -hmm. uh, because of, you know, a little bit of the politics and, and the, the questioning of the value of an, a college degree. But I find that to be opportunities to, to talk more about the importance of it. Um, but I understand that not everyone's willing to engage in those conversations, especially if it's involving, you know, you know, soliciting for philanthropy. But again, I feel like um, it is an opportunity and we just need to find the right people. Um, and that's not necessarily skill based anymore. It's a little bit more of transferable skills. And I, I do. I, I do like that idea that you suggest. I mean, we should be finding people outside our industry, bringing in people with marketing and sales experience and you know, the like that I think can, I, the people that I've seen do that do well have um, enjoyed it one and have made a huge impact at their institutions and changed the industry. There's lots of examples of people who came in with an outside experience and flipped things on their head. And that's a good thing for us. I think we should be. Yeah, I think we, we have to definitely be more entrepreneurial than we've ever been. Higher ed has always been slow to change, right? But now we're all being forced to kind of, you know, reckon with the, we need to be creative. We need to, you know, explore paths that we never had before. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. I think that's definitely what you, one of the reasons I get inspired by the work because I do see the opportunity is in getting creative and doing things a bit differently and, and evolving from where we were before. And I mean, Monica, thinking about your experience in operations, what are some early adjustments that you've had to make at Knox in order to help the team sort of move to the next level and position the team ready to to grow um and you've got some lofty fundraising goals right and you're, yeah. you're, you're trying to reach some some big numbers yeah i would say um a lot of it was really organizationally right i'm um, thinking about job descriptions and what they were and what i think that they really need to be in this kind of space that we're in um so you know getting buy-in in terms of kind of having people think about not just engagement as events, 
but engagement is also, you know, and again, COVID kind of changed some of that. We had to go to virtual, but there's still events. But, you know, our events always meaningful, not so much. And how do we think, you know, about the next step um, of getting people involved, getting them on campus, uh, connecting alumni to each other, um, you know, and ultimately with the goal for philanthropy. So I think when, you know, when I came in, there were more, and we're not a big shop, but there are silos. And, you know, it's just because it's the way that it's been done over the years. And so trying to have everyone step back and say, okay, these are the things that we're doing. If you are an alum, you know, where do you fall in and what are you seeing and are they connected or do you feel more connected because you're getting this type of communication or mailing and then you're getting this from this department. Um, so really trying to have our people, again, think alumni parent specific as opposed to like, what are my goals specifically? Um, so, you know, I did a little bit of staff reorganization, but really kind of change job descriptions to think about the things that we haven't been doing that we would like to do um, and leaving space for that creativity and, you know, the, the collaboration that I think really has to happen in our work. One of the things I, Ryan and I have talked about this, we actually had a, we actually demonstrated this with a client recently where the old model for an alumni engagement professional was someone who had event planning experience. And that was most of what they had in terms of skill set, and they understood marketing volunteer and fundraising even but I think it's flipped. I think marketing communications is the is the lead now. What you need someone volunteer management is second. You don't you don't you don't get rid of events. It's still on there, but it's right. it's not it's as big a chunk of skill set. Yeah, it's a tactical. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think oh, that's going to be one. Of, oh, go ahead, Chris. I was want to go to the next question, but if you want to stay on yeah. topic. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say maybe that's part of the problem when it comes to sort of operationalizing, getting new people in the door yeah. is that we're struggling with that flipping, right? And yeah. the person, the people we're looking for to fill these roles are, are a little bit different. And yet, anyway, there's probably another show there to talk yeah. about that. Probably a panel that we talk about that. Yeah. Bonnie, let, me, let me pivot just for a little bit. And it, so working with the consultant is the topic generally here. So you've been a Washburn McGoldrick client for the past couple of years. And Karen George, uh, one of the principal co-owners of Washburn McGoldrick, uh, she works, her partner is uh, Bonnie Devlin, who I've known Bonnie for 22 years and Karen for the past five years now. And two of the smartest people I've met on the planet and wonderful consultants that's caring and thoughtful. So I'm, I'm, I'm poisoning the well a little bit here by asking you this preliminary part of the question with this, but what have you learned? What's been some of the more memorable things or advice that Karen's given you that you take and keep with you today? Yeah, you know, every, every piece of advice that Karen gives me is valuable and I take with me. I'll leave with that. Um, but I would say early on, um, because I'm, I'm new in like the frontline facing role, um, was really kind of, you know, encouraging me to use my kind of perspective and background and, um, and and not be trying to, you know, kind of take away from what VPs have done in the past. So to kind of mm -hmm. capitalize on my experience and my perspective. And so I, I try to remind myself that when I feel like you know, everyone has like imposter syndrome, right? It's like, like is, is this right? Should I be doing it this way? And, and I think I, I, she's taught me to kind of trust my gut which my gut is very operational, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I do think there's value there. And, you know, so it's just being able to kind of realign um, in the work. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's a, 
she's on the chat. Well, she's watching live right now. So hi, Karen. Oh, hey, Karen. <laughs> and she said, uh-oh, when I asked that question, she wrote, uh-oh, should I log off now before we say crazy? <laughs> She's, she's just a wonderful, uh, the only thing I like about her is competitive background. She's a runner, distance runner. And yes. uh, her competitiveness comes with this great compassion and coaching that comes with the work she does. So I could see her doing that kind of stuff with you to trust your own gut and your instincts. And yeah. yeah. I also love about Karen. Her background starts uh, on campus when she was a, like a, a telephone or a phonathon. Yeah. Right, uh, right. Caller. That's like yeah. the origin story is just perfect for sort of you know starting from the earliest beginnings of of advancement work and um, and now to be doing what she's been doing for so many years. I think it's fantastic. And Monica, has your opinion or thinking about the engagement side of the shop changed at all over since you've been taken over? I know you've had that viewpoint uh, from mm -hmm. the operational standpoint at the different universe. That's how you and I were working together mm -hmm. more than 10 years ago now. Has your thinking changed around engagement? At, you know, What's your vision for activating more alumni and creating an engagement continuum and a donor pipeline there at Knox? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, based on our kind of session two weeks ago, um, I'm definitely moving towards the integrated model um, with both annual giving and the engagement team. And again, I don't want our engagement team to be asking for annual fund gifts. That's not the point. Um, but I think that volunteer piece is key. And, you know, we've, we've done a really good job with events and we have a volunteer structure per se, but it's not it's not one that's really strong and doesn't really have a ramp yet. And, um, and our annual giving office has no volunteers. So I feel like we're, we've got this entire opportunity here to think about if we were to build something, how do we make it meaningful? How do we start small and, and grow over time? Um, and again, not necessarily volunteer fundraisers in every, in every instance. But, you know, we have a few committees. We have some career center volunteers. We have athletic volunteers. And they don't hear anything that's the same right now. Um, so, you know, how do we kind of work together within our two units and kind of make sure that our volunteers have the same experience across anything that they do here at Knox? Um, what, do we give them the talking points? Do we thank them the same way? Um, do we build a connection that is more than just that volunteer role? Because ultimately, I think what we want to do is be able to kind of sustain the volunteerism and the philanthropy way past the programs, the roles, and the staff who are managing them. And we haven't holistically thought about that yet. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. And, and again, we've met the staff. They're all willing to learn. They, it's just not natural. It hasn't happened yet. So trying to see that there is this opportunity and how we can kind of not have one person just be assigned to doing it, <laughs> but that it's part of the ethos of what right. we're right. trying to build. Um, that's that's how I, again, it's, it's donor and volunteer centric. Like what is their experience? And, you know, do they feel like it's been a good use of their time and their money? I think that's kind of the fundamental shift that's happening right now in our space is that for a long time, we thought of, you know, using experiential events to then find just a handful of sort of activate, like the most engaged alumni for 
board-based and council-based and intimate volunteer experiences. But what we need to do is have a fewer events and somehow build a scalable volunteer system where there's far more volunteer opportunities to get involved with the university. So maybe rather than thinking of a strategy that fundamentally is about scaling events, it's fundamentally thinking about a strategy that that increases the number of available volunteer opportunities. I don't know, Chris, would you agree with that? Amen and hallelujah is my response to that. I mean, I think we should be doing less events and more what you're describing and including, you know, uh, offering micro volunteering op- opportunities that people can do in their homes and do it digitally and not have to come to campus for, you know, a two day meeting and, and serve on a board. Um, you know, I think of those as not as an opportunity. A lot of, a lot of times board service is more of a sentence than it is an opportunity. <laughs> so we need to have lighter versions of it. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah, um, go ahead. My follow up question for you. So I might be partly to blame for one of the exercises you did when Ryan was in town, uh, I don't know if he told you this, but I, I, I was the instigator of the marshmallow challenge exercise. Oh, I love I was it. Doing that about four years ago, and I've had really good success with it. Uh, how did your team? How did you respond to it? What was your thoughts on it? You know, I thought I think they appreciated. I did not participate. I've done it before at another place, and um, but I find it to be it is a very worthwhile experiment. Right? It's it's about teamwork. It's about communication. Um, you find out the competitive nature of people. <laughs> exactly right. There's a lot of lessons come out. A lot of personalities come out on that one. Yeah, I mean, for those who have never, tri- for those who have never tried it, the marshmallow challenge is you, you take um, spaghetti, a yard of string, and a yard of tape. Twenty pieces of spaghetti, a yard of string, and a yard of tape, and one you- marshmallow. And one marshmallow. And you got to build a structure that will support the marshmallow on top. And it was really actually, I thought, a great exercise that puts people away outside their comfort zone and (laughs) has them do something that they've never tried to do before. You know, get that, Monica, what you're talking about is that you you were describing change in culture of your organization. And this forces people to quickly collaborate in a way that's outside the norms of what a culture looks like. So, you know, the old adage that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. This is forcing people to think about things in a different way. And it's one of the exercises we do to help bring about the change that's needed in culture to get people to be iterative in their process, to communicate, collaborate earlier, all those things that the lesson that teaches us. So I'm glad you, glad you did it. Thank you. It was great. <laughs> Good. Well, well, we'll pick up the conversation with Monica in the bonus section that we'll put up on the podcast. Uh, so for those who are listening live uh, or who are catching this episode after the fact on YouTube or on LinkedIn, uh, thank you for tuning in. And hopefully, if you haven't already, you're, you're picking us up on the podcast version so you can hear our conversation with Monica extended and with all of our special guests. Uh, you can pick that up on uh, the three the major podcast apps of Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. So Let's tease the next one, though. January 5th, yeah, or first one in 24. Uh, our good friend and colleague, and I can't wait for this conversation, Scott Morey from Carnegie Mellon. Someone else who came from a different background. Uh, someone who came out of the alumni engagement side. He's now the vice president for advancement at Carnegie Mellon in the midst of a multi-billion dollar campaign and doing really cool things there and looking forward to talking to Scott. Yeah, me too. I've, I've had a quick handshake with Scott before, never had the chance for an in-depth conversation, but really looking forward to that. So tune us in in uh, two weeks time. Actually, I, we are looking at that first Friday after the new year. 
Uh, so folks may not be back to the office yet uh, at that point. Maybe they will, but we'll be in your podcast feed and here live on LinkedIn and on YouTube for uh, Scott Mori in two weeks. But for Chris and for Monica, thank you so much for listening, tuning into Alumnus. We appreciate you. Happy holidays, and we'll see Happy you. holidays, everybody. Thank Happy you, Monica. Holidays. Thank we'll you. See you in 2024. All right. Bye. Hey, listeners. Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many, but instead, we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves if we were at the helm of trying to you know facilitate someone's question going to those individuals right it's just it's automatic and that's the beauty of it um the other thing i would say to you is that it is also it's bringing people into um it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way right but they really are appreciative that you know they get an opportunity to to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for picking up the podcast edition of Alumless. I'm here with Chris Marshall and special guest Monica Keith. Monica is Vice President for Advancement at Knox College. Knox is in Galesburg, Illinois, which is a beautiful little uh, more country area of Illinois that I had the chance to visit a couple weeks ago. Cute little town. Um, some great restaurants. Knox is a bit of a historic school. Uh, I didn't know that and um, took a picture, Monica, when I was there of the building. I believe the Lincoln-Douglas debates took place. Yeah, old man. That's kind of a cool claim to fame. Uh, but I was going to ask you maybe to kick off the, the bonus section. If you talk a little bit about Knox College, what makes it such a special school, its unique characteristics? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, Knox College was founded in 1837. Um, founded by George Washington Gale, um, and he was an abolitionist. Um, so it was started, you know, pretty much with those social justice roots. Um, Galesburg itself is an underground railroad station. 
Um, so there's a lot of history in Galesburg as well. So it's I think it's just got a very rich history with a social justice kind of background founding that continues today. Um, and it's got some really cool, unique traditions like pump handle. I don't know if you saw on our what website. Is pump handle. Pump handle is like a tradition for when first years arrive, they kind of start shaking everyone's hand on campus. We create this, we have an actual pump handle and we kind of line up outside of Old Main and um, every student shakes the hand of every staff and coach and employee. And then we do it again at graduation. So it's kind of how they start their experience and they and they end it with, again, handshaking. So it's, you know, community-based, which is really cool. And there's pictures over decades of alumni doing pump handles. Um, and it's just a really cool thing. That is really cool. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And then, things you know, that you can only do at a smaller size school. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so. did, 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 did anybody complain about it after the pandemic and germ spreading with handshaking? Or did you, you know, it became like a, an elbow bumping <laughs> and a wave um, for because I arrived towards the end of the pandemic. Right. So that was, you know, there was a lot of masking and waving and, and <laughs> elbow bumping. Yeah. But last year <laughs> and even this fall, we, we started handshaking again. They're still better uncomfortable which you know but they show up and it's really about again getting cool. to know everyone on campus so it's kind of funny how you know shaking hundreds of hands has that <laughs> the way we think about that fundamentally is has a lot of people <laughs> has changed changed. Uh, yeah. uh, certainly you know um as you say direct result of the pandemic that's a really unique tradition. It's one of the best parts about I think small schools like Knox with these large, incredible histories is, is programs like that. Right. Chris, as you think about Monica's background, you know, and coming up through the operations side of the house, what, what kind of advantages do you see in someone that brings that role um, coming up sort of that extensive experience, experience in the, in the back of the house role? Yeah. You mentioned it earlier on that the back of the house having their eyes on all pieces, all components. So having a broader view of things is, is one for sure. Understanding the systems. A big one would be business processes and why we do what we do. Right? You know, a lot of VPs don't get that. But but the, the champion um, of data and data collection and data analysis, all those things fall under the data category or all another you know, huge components of it. You know, whatever, I was thinking about this question, Ryan, and it reminded me a little bit back. I used to coach at Lehigh University. I was a swimming coach and it was an, a lot of, you know, different majors, but engineering was one of the things it was well known for. And we had a lot of industrial systems engineers who would go to work for UPS. Right? And you know what they did when you started working for UPS? You're, you know, you get a nice salary out of school, a four year bachelor's degree from a major university. And you, what you do the first three months on the job, you drive a truck and deliver <laughs> packages and then you work on the line and then you load the trucks. And then, you know, the whole point of it is to get people to understand the back of the house so that when they get into the other leadership roles, they fully understand the work, that, how it got to where they are in their own roles. And it reminded me a little bit of that. Like it was like a, like a UPS truck driving training was your back of the house working. Right. I was going to say, it would never work the other way around in advancement, right? <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. Well, like sort of to that end, you know, there's things like, you know, like engagements, tracking, you know, right. and yeah. like uh, different types of 
components where you're thinking about how technology should be best used to support the advancement shop. And, you know, you've got such a, a great background in, in all of that uh, throughout your, your, you know, your career experiences. As you, what, are, what are some of the things that you think about as kind of best practices in sort of back of the house or even some philosophies that you personally kind of think about as like, okay, these are we're go- our North Star is a thing we're going to be working towards are based around some of these operational philosophies? Yeah, I, you know, that's a great question. I, I think of, you know, from a technology standpoint, especially in operations, um, there's always like the shiny new thing that the gift officer wants or the alumni director wants. And, you know, not us. (laughs) And so for me, it's always been, okay, I'll look at it with you. And I'm going to ask some questions in terms of how can we use this beyond your shop? Because we're not always big shops. And so, you know, if everyone gets a shiny new toy, but none of the toys talk to each other, or can play well. Is it really helpful to the institution? Um, So it's really thinking again about how can we, be, you know, it's a balance always between what is efficient and what is effective. Um, Because what is efficient for maybe one shop is not effective in the greater scheme of everything that we're doing and trying to find the, you know, the points of intersection where, you know, we can build a process that is maybe specific to entry and contact report, so to speak, but then it's also something we can use for tracking engagement. It's also something we can use for tracking communications. Um, We just might have different codes, but the process is essentially flexible and scalable enough. Um, And I think that's what, you know, my role has always historically been is how do we, how do we take this to a level that is more than just one unit? Um, Because the experience of our staff and our alumni cannot be logging into five different platforms just to get the information they feel like they need. Right. Yeah. um, You know, again, thinking, um, you know, that big picture. Do you think like, as you now you're sort of leading advancement and you're thinking about the messaging that you'd like to share with the president of the university, the trustees around engagement at mm-hmm. Knox, and you're starting to think about like, what do we want to say about engagement through the counting of engagement activity or the scoring of engagement, you know, to individuals, you know, what do you have? Have you been thinking about like the story of engagement and what you want to tell the leadership team at Knox about, you know, Knox alumni? Yeah. I mean, I would say I started at a very, I started early, but at a very small level so that I could kind of build it as, as we were moving forward. Um, So when I started, I had asked, you know, our reporting team to kind of pull every alum um, who has made a gift or volunteered or attended an event. And that is like the basic engagement score. (laughs) And so, and I shared that with the board and I thought, you know, we've got 14,000 active alumni. We've about 30% of them are engaged in any given time throughout the year. And, you know, what would it look like, you know, if we could get to 50%? And again, those are three very different criteria, but as you mentioned earlier on, you know, volunteers are likely to give at a higher rate. Um, Event attendees, it's less the case, which is, again, you know, should we think about the resources we put into events? Um, Or do we combine events into some sort of volunteer or greater pipeline? And how do we use it more as a tactic and less as a measure? And, um, but, you know, I, I do think the board appreciated hearing that it's more than just giving, 
because um, our you know participation rate is is closer to 23, 24%, but our engagement is closer to 33%. Um, and if we can move engagement, we would hope to move alumni giving as well. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, again, we're starting small, but we're looking at, okay, well, what are the volunteer opportunities and how do we get people volunteering more? Are we giving them enough opportunities? Are we tracking it all similarly um, across different systems? Um, and, and how are we kind of stewarding that to get repeat volunteers or to get them to kind of promote volunteer opportunities to their network as well? Twenty-three percent giving, twenty-three, twenty-four would be um, enviable for many institutions to get to that level. But my guess is it's probably down from where you guys were at one point. Is that a true statement? Yes, yes. I would Do you say. hear that from board members? I, I was just on a call recently of Davidson College, and they're talking about how they're down to forty-eight percent, trying to get back to fifty, and they have board members who remember the days of sixty, sixty-five percent, and they want to get back to that. <laughs> it's hard. It's just not. Uh, you hear the same pressure from it's your hard. I wouldn't say I've heard that from board members as much as other yeah. alumni who remember, you know, when the participation rate is higher. And and I will say I, I find that, I mean, it's always been the case that the, the gold classes, right, the graduates of the last decade yep. have been difficult. But I think it's, it's even more challenging now, um, you know, especially in this economic market, the political market. Um, so it's, it's trying, again, to get them engaged in another way um, first yeah. and providing value to them, valuable programming. And we, right. So I mean, we've been talking about that alumni engagement participation rate across the four categories, you know, philanthropy being one of those categories, volunteerism being a crucial component. We know people who do attend events also give more. Uh, and as do people who engage with our communications just to a lesser degree. So all the while, you, you're thinking about these things probably and largely around program management and marketing mm -hmm. terms, right? Segmenting lists, using technology effectively. What are the in annual giving programs and messages that are going to deliver on getting more alumni to participate but you're also out there asking for gifts yourself, right? I mean, you're on the front lines with major donors of the university and you're in front of the top 1%, you know, of donors at the school as, as the sort of part of your job that I would imagine you think about intensely, right? Uh, mm -hmm. As to how that's going to work. How, do you enjoy asking for gifts in general? What have been some of your experiences so far as, as you've been working with the Knox donors and, uh, how have you worked with Knox president, Andy McGadney? I know he's a colleague, of course, that you worked with and, and know before you moved there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like three questions at once. So I'm going to try to remember them in order. <laughs> <laughs> well, number one, do you enjoy asking for gifts? Right? Okay. What have been some of your memorable experiences working sort of, um, you know, asking for gifts from major donors and, and how have you worked with the president? Okay. Um, so do I enjoy asking for gifts? Is and That is an interesting question because um, I actually don't think of it that way. I think of it more as like inviting them to participate and invest. Um, yes. I spend a lot of my time really kind of listening. Um, I want to hear people's stories first. I want to see um, what they're interested in, what they're already supporting, thank them for their support, and, and then try to align those interests and there's their values to kind of our needs and our strategic initiatives. Um, and so I would say, you know, I, I enjoy the listening and then 
asking for sure, but it's a lot more about kind of inviting them to be a part of something bigger because I feel like in most cases they are already part of it. And it's just hearing it, you know, directly because, you know, obviously I've read a lot of call reports by the time I have these kind of meetings. Um, but, you know, people's priorities change, especially in the last two to three years. Um, and, you know, having them, you know, hear from me and meeting them and um, trying to better align um, where they are today with where we are as an institution today as well. So I do enjoy I, the ask, I guess, if that's what you call it. The <laughs> um, I guess the other piece was really the experiences. I, again, we want to hear a fun war story. That's what we want to hear. Yeah, that's what we're after. <laughs> a fun war story? I mean, I guess I hear a lot of, you know, people love to tell you what they don't enjoy, right? What they haven't appreciated. <laughs> and I'm all ears when it comes to that too. Um, I will say some people, you know, it's it's more about timing and um, and that's not a closed door in my book. It's just, okay, now I know, you know like this is not the right time and, and what those decisions are based on. Um, but it takes time. And I think that is what I have I've learned. I mean, I knew because I've always been the one who's kind of entered the gift agreements and things like that. Yeah. But um, just that kind of the ongoing dialogue, keeping the door open, um, making sure that as they're kind of, you know, refining their thoughts on their philanthropy that um, that I'm anticipating the questions and giving them the information that's helpful for them to make their decisions. So, and if it's a no, it's a no. And um, I think that's just important again to keep them engaged because I still think a no is not now. Yeah. How's it, how's it working with, with your president? Is, is Andy a good fundraiser? You, you yeah. Get- you know, well, Andy, you know, or you might not know, um, has been a vice president for advancement, right? Yeah, so he, um, <laughs> he has a lot of experience and he's been, he's one of the very, um, very important pieces of like mentoring for me in the past, but also in the present, because he'll say, you know, Monica, you know, this is one where you can do over the phone, or this is one where you have to fly on a plane and just get in front of them. Um, Or, you know, providing strategic direction. I think, you know, we have a very good working relationship. Um, Obviously I came here to work with him again, Um, but his insight um, as a former gift officer and VP, um, has been extremely beneficial. And, um, and you know, I don't need to do as much prep for him <laughs> as I have for other VPs because I know he he pretty much has his pieces down. Got it. Got it. How would you describe um, your, you talked about some of the philosophy in terms of integrated advancement already, but I'm curious about your leadership style. Oh, what yeah. So how you approach that. Yeah, I have always been a lead by example. Um, there isn't anything I would ask someone to do that I have not tried, um, even if it's not at all something I would normally do. But, I, you know, I, I've i entered gifts. I've done some web programming, you know, all these things. I want to know how difficult it is that I'm asking people to do things for me. Um, so, you know, again, it's with that kind of like, giving people grace, um, to learn if they haven't done something that I've asked them to do before, um, letting them know that I would roll up my sleeves and, and sit there with them and try to figure it out. I want us to be problem solvers. I want us to be, um, you know, 
all bring something to the table. So definitely I would say my style is to lead by example and, um, and to really build people up because I feel like um, we are one big team, even though we're separate, separate units. And so it's important that everyone understands each other's roles and can figure out how to best kind of play together. And, um, and you know, it's, it's my role to kind of understand each of their roles as well and help them be successful. Yep. Brian, our next uh, scheduled question we've already covered, I think, about ideas about integrated advancement, bringing your team together. We talked about culture and um, changing that culture there at Knox is um, part of the challenge. It's going to take, you know, years to get to the point where you can feel you've accomplished that. Um, any, any any headway you've made so far? Um, can, can you feel a difference in any capacity or with the team overall in terms of culture? I do. I feel like there, there. I, I always look for the aha moments, <laughs> and um, you know, sometimes it could be like aha. But, <laughs> but yeah, I do. Um, you know, I'll, I've grown my team about a about a hundred percent since I've been here. I mean, we were about eight people when I started, but there were eleven positions, and now we're we're twenty. Um, and not all of them have come from advancement, but that is a good thing um, because yeah, people ask the question about why why are we doing this or you know how does this align with what I'm supposed to do? And so there are a lot of aha moments and um, but those who've been here for a while also have great institutional history, right? Yeah. Knowledge yeah. about why something doesn't work or may not work um, from a cultural standpoint, but also from a staffing standpoint. And um, so the the fact that we can all share that, you know, the questions, the answers and solve problems collectively, I think has been huge. And right. so I do feel like the culture is changing, but there how are you, campaigns. <laughs> well, how have you emphasized, like sort of, you said you've doubled the size of your team, you know, how have you been thinking about where to add resources and FTE, like what, what was sort of that, um, you know, you did an initial audit, I guess, of needs yeah. assessment of what you needed to, to improve and, and what did you discover and how have you been thinking about, you know, staffing up? Yeah. I mean, early on when I started, I really kind of took a look at the staffing structure and um, knowing what, you know, our anticipated fundraising goals would be. Clearly, I kind of started on the advancement side, but also understanding that the engagement is so pivotal in kind of building that pipeline, um, also looking there. And again, I'm a data person and there was really no reporting staff. So I was like, we absolutely need that. And we absolutely need prospect research. Um, so those were two new positions entirely. And the others were really just kind of like enhancing what we already had because, you know, Max has already been raising a lot of good money over the years. Um, but knowing like we wanted to grow the annual fund and a sustainable structure of increased fundraising and, you know, going into campaign, those were areas where it was really like, what is going to move the dial um, in the short term, but then also, you know, for the sustainable future. It makes total sense that you would look towards those infrastructure <laughs> yeah. uh, operational gaps uh, <laughs> to fill to, in order to best resource the the front of the house and its endeavors. That uh, makes total sense to me. And um, I'm imagining that that resource has uh, added has already been tremendously beneficial and. and uh, well, um, Monica, to wrap up our show, we each episode 
have a segment what we call Friday Cheers, which is a chance for us to sort of talk about maybe something else that uh, is not advancement related. Maybe it is advancement related or alumni related, but something that we're thinking about, something we've listened to, something that we've read, something that supports us in our lives to share with the listening audience. Uh, we usually let our, our esteemed special guests go first with their Friday cheers. Uh, do, you have a, do you have something that you have been thinking about for Friday cheers? I do. I have, and I actually just received it in the mail yesterday, but I think what I love about the holidays is the time to read. And I wanted to read this book and someone actually sent it to me. <laughs> I feel like Think Again by Adam Grant. It's like knowing what you don't know. You might have read it, but I, I read a review about it the other day and I thought, oh my gosh, this kind of sums up my ears. Like learning, you know, all the things about advancement and um, trying to empower people who also haven't known a whole lot about advancement and make them feel confident. Um, so I'm really looking forward to reading that book. And well, I have a few other books on my kind of list of to do's next week, but it's quite a hard book, you know, not a, yeah. not a me version. I know. I love hardcover books, softcover, just nah, nothing electronic for me. The, the listener won't see it, but hold it up so I can see it. So think again by Adam Grant. Was it? Yeah. Yes. Think Adam. again, Adam Grant. <laughs> Adam Grant's a professor at the uh, Wharton School of Business yes. at Penn, and um, he's written a number of excellent books. I, I did, I think, I saw that book profiled recently on the news, and um, you know, his his books kind of like I guess Malcolm Gladwell to me are sort of <laughs> like this sort of practical, smart, science based, like oh wow, that just makes a ton of sense type of right. read. Where you just like you like grab onto these nuggets of information, you're like ah. You know, it's aha moments in every in any, every chapter, which I love. How about Chris? How about you? My, mine's a personal one. Um, I was telling Ryan Monica over the um, break when you were on the trustee call. Very important phone call. We had to take a break for. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was sharing. I always, you know, prep, get myself ready for these calls the day before, and I was thinking about what I was going to talk about this. And my eleven-year-old uh, daughter uh, climbed up into my lap. We watched. Um, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas last night. Uh, it's a Christmas movie that we always have on. And she climbed up into my lap and just, I held her for 30 seconds, maybe. And she got back down and she said, that was the favorite part of my day, dad. And, and it reminded me how much, how important it is, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm always on this damn thing. I'm holding up my phone um, uh, and constantly working. You know, I probably work 60, 80 hours every week and, and what I try to do during the break is like we talked about at the very beginning, the opening is, is unplug and spend time with the family, with friends. If you don't have nieces, nephews, whatever it is, you know, hug and hold the kids and get down on the floor and play with them. And that kind of thing is all stuff I'm going to do over my next 10 days and uh, put that phone away and just be present with what my goal is over the next 10 days with my family. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, and best of luck putting your phone down. It's uh, when your phone is also your entertainment. It is also, you know, it's it's so many things. It, it makes it really difficult to put that sucker down, but yeah. uh, in, definitely important to do so. So, um, well, best of best wishes to you to as you're spending time with your kids over the break. So I intend to do the same, but I um I, I found a really. I often comb through, you know, relevant uh, articles about alumni engagement in our space and try to see what people are writing and saying about it and interesting on where program ideas and how they're developing, but kind of a classic 
Endeavor is to uh, provide lists of the books that alumni of your school or college have written. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I found an, a fun article that the Columbia Law School just put together called From Thrillers to Treatises, The Year in Alumni Books. In 2023, Columbia Law graduates published novels and nonfiction books on a broad array of topics, political thrillers, real-life conspiracy, a primer on socialism. These are the latest works uh, that of diverse interests of the Columbia Law community. Here are seven books that the Columbia Law graduates have published. And I was thinking, you know, these are great initiatives. They make for good content that you can post. But I wonder... How do you dig deeper into, you know, this opportunity that exists to engage with the authors and thought leaders amongst your alumni community, mm. you know, featuring them, sharing what they've written, you know, having these dialogues and, you know, is there a top of funnel strategy to provide like maybe you have to in order to see the list of books, you know, you've got to sign in and you know, just uh, mark that you're engaging with the alumni office through this type of kind of awareness opportunity, all these interesting books, feature them in newsletters, you know. So it's it's not a new thing, right? Uh, I definitely think it's part of a very traditional approach to engagement, but I was kind of reminded on how effective that probably is to focus on, you know, where your interesting thought leaders are amongst your alumni. I was at a school recently where they have in the lobby of their, like the sitting room of their alumni house are shelves of books and they're all alumni authored books. It's the, to get on that shelf, you have to be an alum of that institution. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You imagine a broad array of people who yeah. write for magazines, people who write novels, children's books, right? And how do you stay on top of all those interesting publications and make them somewhat available, uh, even through a referral or whatever, but um, interesting challenge to solve that's that's not event-based right it's not another event how do you how do you take advantage of that um maybe you turn it into an event featuring featuring these authors but anyway maybe but that's about (laughs) yeah i know we do that for our homecoming alumni and faculty book signings but it's you know that's cool once a year yeah well i think that that's it for us for this week it's been great monica having you on alumnus thank you so much for joining us and and sharing all about your work at Knox. We are excited to uh, stay in touch with you, of course, watch your uh, great work that you're doing at Knox and best of luck to your team as you continue to grow the advancement unit at Knox. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll be in touch as you uh, continue to, um, you know, lead that organization. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. A great holiday to you. Happy New Year and best closing out the calendar year. Thank you. All right, Chris. Well, best holiday wishes to you too, yeah, sir. Yeah. We'll uh, be back in touch in the new year with uh, we'll have Scott Morey that first week that we're back. And um, you can pick up the podcast version uh, of uh, all of our episodes. Thank you to Max Leiston and the team at Protopia for being our presenting sponsor. If you had not had a chance to check out uh, Protopia's awesome AI-based platform, you should definitely check it out. There's no app or platform, nothing for alumni to join. So it's totally different than other approaches that require people to log in. All right. Well, that'll do it. Happy holidays from us. 